Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, the next in our series of discussions with Washington's 2020 congressional candidates. Bill Gardner has served as one of the top aides for Congressman Denny Heck, whose seat he's looking to fill in the 10th congressional district. Our conversation with him is next, so stay with us. Before we get started, I just want to mention a cause near and dear to my heart. The Eastside Democrats were unable to have their annual fundraiser this year for the first time in 34 years due to the pandemic. I know that a large number of listeners to this show, like me, live on or around the East Side, so you are familiar with the great work that the East Side Dems do, like flipping entire legislative districts blue and getting Dr. Kim Schreier elected to Congress. It goes without saying that there is so much vital work to be done this year so that we can expand our Democratic gains in the state House and Senate. And of course, to keep Democrats in seats at the state level, including leaders like A.G. Bob Ferguson and Governor Jay Inslee, and of course, defending Dr. Kim Schreier's seat. These side dams are so close to their goal of $45,000, so I am hoping that you can help. I know that money is tight for a lot of people right now, but if you can help, and you know who you are, I'm really encouraging you to donate and help the East Side Dems do the vital work that they do to keep us blue on the East Side and across the state. So to donate, you can go to eastsidedemocrats.org. There is also an Act Blue page that you can access at indivisiblepodcast.org. Thank you so much. And with that, on with the show. My guest, Phil Gardner, has served as one of Congressman Denny Heck's top aides for nearly a decade, working as communications director and press secretary in Heck's Washington, D.C. office, and then as district director in the 10th. He is currently running to fill the seat vacated by Denny Heck's retirement from Congress, and we are very glad that he could join us. Phil Gardner, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I would just ask you, uh, because these are extraordinary times, how is the campaign going right now? It can't be an easy time to run a campaign. Uh, no, and, and campaigns are never easy. Uh, so this has sort of added a whole new, new twist to everything. Um, in the grand scheme of things, my situation doesn't really compare to, to the sacrifice that so many people are going through right now, but, um, it does make, uh, it does create some wrinkles that I wouldn't have anticipated even when I got in this in January. And I've, I've worked on campaigns from the state and local and federal level for the last 15 years or so. So I have a pretty good familiarity with how these things go, and there's simply been no campaign cycle like this one, first starting with the the pandemic when it hit, but now um, just in the past few weeks with the uh, protests and, and awakening that's sort of happening across the country, that's, that's added another element to it. It's a very political moment, um, but people are sort of focusing that energy on protest and activism, and I think that's that's where it should be. Uh, but that, that makes electoral politics uh, at an interesting place for this moment. For sure. Well, I mean, speaking of all of that, that's really where I would love to begin our conversation and just talk a little bit about the events of the last couple of weeks surrounding the, the murder of George Floyd and then the national protests and uprisings in response. And I'd love to frame it around your age. You have noted that if you were elected, you would be the first member of Congress born in the 1990s. I would love to get your thoughts generally on what we're seeing in the country right now, and especially how you see the impact that young people are making in it. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing I want to acknowledge is is my privilege in this. Um, I am a white man, and this is this upcoming generation, the millennials and Gen Z, uh, are the most racially diverse generation um, in our nation's history. 
Um, and so no one person can can claim to speak for everybody, and, and, and certainly not a white man can claim to speak for, for everybody in our generation. Um, my, my experience of working both in, in youth politics and, and in federal politics alongside Congressman Heck, um, I'm really not that surprised by the moment that we're in. I, I am surprised that it happened so suddenly and quickly, and, and clearly it happened partly because of the pandemic and then, of course, the, the tragic killing of, of George Floyd. But the, the grievances that have led to this moment, especially among young people, have been building and building and building virtually our entire lives. Um, you know, I was born after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, technically, I was born when the Soviet Union was was still around, but I, I have no memory of it. Sure. And for for folks who are sort of coming at this from my generation's perspective, are are really political memories. We have any of the Clinton years? It's the impeachment. Um, the partisan fighting then, and then through the Bush years, it's 9-11 and the Iraq war and Hurricane Katrina, and then the financial crisis, and then the Tea Party wave, and then Black Lives Matter and, and the killings of, of Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, uh, and then, of course, the election of Donald Trump and now the pandemic. So, you know, government can work, and there are instances even in that time period where government has accomplished some good things, the Affordable Care Act being, I think, the, the greatest example. but for people of my generation, trying to convince them that this system works and specifically works for them is really difficult because there's not really a lot of evidence that they've lived to see it. And so I think that this is the culmination of all those things built up and people feeling no real outlet for it and finally sort of reaching a, a breaking point. Um, but the the folks who are leading it have been doing the work on the ground for years, even while it hasn't been in the headlines. And, and the opportunity to take advantage of this political moment that we're in is really due to the work that that they have done. And so I view my my role, if, if I were to get in Congress, or even if I'm not, just as a young political leader, um, is to make a contribution in the spaces and places where I've done work, but also to help lift up those voices uh, around me who have been doing work on other areas. Because if, if we're gonna get out of this, if we're gonna move forward, uh, it's going to require every single person of all generations and of all backgrounds to to get involved because this is no time to sit on the sidelines. Well, and in that vein, you know, you said in a recent interview that you feel like this is a moment where real change may be possible. And I, I agree, but I'm wondering why you feel like this moment is different and may give way to real and lasting change. I think because... It is at least for the forces who have been holding this up for so long, they're frankly still in a state of shock. Um, if you the the Justice and Policing Act, the, the main bill that House Democrats have put forth um, that uh, George Floyd's brother uh, testified at the hearing of, um, if, if you must and go and listen to what the Republicans were saying, or, or perhaps if, if folks were listening and heard it, they really couldn't attack or weren't interested, at least in attacking any of the proposals within the bill. They sort of created these straw man caricatures about defunding police and, uh, you know, claiming that Capitol Hill has been taken over by anarchists and, and so on and so forth. But the, the problem statement has now just become so glaringly clear and obvious that it can't really be ignored. And there was there was a brief moment after Eric Garner, um, the, the killing of Eric Garner, who was uh, killed by the NYPD back in 2014, which was also on video and, and in a lot of ways had a similarity to, to the killing of George Floyd. That's uh, one of the first prominent examples of the, the I can't breathe uh, phrase becoming a part of, of protest lingo. Um, 
And and there was a moment there where I think people realized what was happening, but then the world moved on. But young people and, and people in the streets are not letting the world move on right now. And I think that's what's creating uh, this political space. And for now, the, the forces of um, white supremacy and, and institutional power that have really guided this country uh, for the last 400 years, they're, they're on the other foot right now and, and they're on the defense. And again, I, I don't think that will last forever, but I think that is where we are at right now. And I think now we need to take as much advantage as we can to move that ball forward before they can regroup um, and then also keep it going in the streets. And I think that the coronavirus, in addition to raising a social consciousness about systemic racism, just the sheer fact that there are now so many young people who are unemployed who, you know, they can go and be on the streets for days after days after days. Um, you know, there's not sort of other things to distract. And I, I can't really, uh, I don't think that should be understated in terms of the, the impact of why these protests have continued. It's that simple logistical fact. So like a lot of things in American history, it's this odd confluence of multiple things happening all at once. But uh, that is the story of our country. And, and usually we are able to, to move forward out of it. Um, and I hope that, and I hope, and I think that, that this will be one of those moments. I hope so too. I, I want to talk about Congress's response to all this. You, you brought up the bill that the House Democrats just unveiled, the Justice and Policing Act, which among many other things would ban chokeholds, establish a national database to track police misconduct, prohibit certain no-knock warrants, would scale back liability shields for police officers and a lot more. I wonder, do you feel like this bill meets the moment and goes far enough? I think it goes far enough for a broad section of the American public. Um, I think I think they have hit the sweet spot in terms of, again, what is hard to argue against um, because Republicans really were not attempting to argue against it. And I think that that was a big part of what went into being um, in, in that that piece of legislation. The the sort of bigger picture things that a lot of the the activists and and protests are calling for in terms of defunding the police or or changes to local policies. Uh, a either they're they're local issues that Congress really can't uh, directly legislate it or at least hasn't really had a precedent for it. Um, theoretically, Congress could try, and then there might be a constitutional challenge on on some bases. But um, I think that it's it's certainly not going to satisfy everybody. And I, and I already know that, that it hasn't. And I would like to see more happen than just what's in that federal bill. I, I do think that budgets at the state and local levels in terms of policing and sheriff's departments and other law enforcement agencies need to be seriously reevaluated because there is, you know, as someone who's worked in, in local and state politics, you know, you always want the police endorsement. You always want the sheriff's endorsement. You never want to speak against it. And that creates a situation where those groups have so much power and leverage that their budgets just continually grow and grow and grow without a lot of thought as mm. to whether, um, not whether it's unnecessary, but um, whether those dollars should be going elsewhere within our social services system. Um, and there's reason to think that police and, and law enforcement would support that. They, they have been saying for years and years and years that they don't want to be the ones responding to mental health crises or, or domestic violence disputes. Um, that you know they haven't actually escalated to to level where a, a police officer is necessary. Um, so that is something that I'd like to see. I, I don't think that's necessarily something that can be put in a federal bill, but I think that's something that we can't 
uh, dismissed as unreasonable. Uh, I just think it's something that needs to happen at, at a different level and, and is based on each community. And so then just philosophically, uh, you're you're touching on this around the edges. I'll just ask you to be a little more explicit. How do you see Congress's role in police accountability? Because we've seen a lot of debate really between, you know, whether it should be at the municipal level, whether things like consent decrees at the federal level uh, should be more impactful. We've even had discussion about, you know, state legislation, state legislature action as well. How do you see philosophically the federal government really fitting into this this puzzle? Yeah, well, the consent decrees certainly need to come back. Um, That has been, I think, one of the big disappointments. Well, there have been many disappointments of the Trump years, but uh, so much of what the Obama Justice Department was doing under uh, Attorney General Holder and then Attorney General Lynch, the Trump administration just ceased doing both the, the consent decrees, but also um, you know programs to help local governments who wanted to do the right things in terms of revising their use of force policies or implementing body cams. The, the Justice Department made resources available and, and, and pointed local governments in the right direction, and that just all stopped. And so that needs to come back, certainly. In terms of the sort of notion of where policing should be regulated at, yeah, I mean, there's, I don't remember the exact figure, but there, there's thousands of different law enforcement agencies across the country when you, when you count the different sheriffs and, and police departments. And there is certainly an argument that uh, we should regulate all of those at the federal level, because otherwise there's just going to be no consistency and no real way to ever get this under control. Um, I think the history of America has shown that a policy like that is is not going to last long, even if there is political will to get it implemented. Um, but I think that what you could see is perhaps a certain level of minimums that police departments are expected to fulfill, um, perhaps a more formalized uh, look at accountability that you know, something like a consent decree, but doesn't require it to be run through a court, something that maybe is triggered if there's a certain um, level of misconduct that occurs, or um, I I don't really know exactly the, the specifics of how um, it would look, because I think like, like a lot of us, there's sort of a whole new set of ideas that we're just sort of trying to listen to and understand for the first time, even for someone like me, who's, who's worked in politics for, for a very long time and has been familiarized with uh, a lot of the the major policy issues in here, you know, I haven't really ever dealt into understanding, you know, what, what does uh, the prison abolition movement mean or what does, you know, abolition of the police forces mean? These ideas that are, are now being talked about and I think need to be heard and listened to and, and how some of those sort of values and concepts could actually be translated into actual legislation. Um, but I do think that there there needs to be a way for people to understand what is happening without having to do sort of in-depth, you know, it shouldn't take you 12 hours of internet research to understand your own city's police department use of force policy. Um, And I think that the easiest way to do that is to have some sort of national standard that everybody understands everybody's supposed to fulfill to a certain degree. and then I think beyond that, I think we're just going to sort of have to see where the conversation leads us. But I, I, there's nothing that I think should be off the table here. Um, and I think that this is one of those moments where because so much is on the table, we should keep the conversation broad while, while we are able to do it. And so following down that path 
uh, I will ask you another rather large question. And, you know, at the root of all this is, is really the question of racial justice, right? I and mean, we have laws that ban discrimination. Uh, we have laws that, you know, ban uh, police violence, but they're either not enforced or the racism is systemic and it's institutional. So how do you see Congress's role there in creating a more equitable society going forward? Well, yeah, and that, that goes sort of to the root of, of the notion of why some of these institutions just sort of need to go away because they are become so um, – the racism, the culture is just so racked in it that is there really a way to do it um, that can make it happen? And, and I don't know if, if it can be. Um, you know, this, what's happening in, in Minneapolis in terms of um, the, the council pledging to explore some sort of new public safety model – I'm very curious to see how that goes. There have been other yeah, you, you and everybody else, I think, who's <laughs> yeah, watching that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and there have been another, uh, a few others. They're not directly akin. The, the one I was I was reading about the other day involved uh, Camden, New Jersey, which um, was not a situation where there was a. I mean, there there were lots of systemic racism issues as there are with with any police force. But the, the other issue in, in Camden, New Jersey, was just systemic corruption in, in terms of a sort of graft and financial standpoint. And the way that they ended up resolving it was shutting down that city police department and having the county um, oversee that instead uh, with the option for other cities within the county to be a part of it, something none of the other cities have, have taken advantage of. But that's the sort of thing where you're not you still have a policing model, but you are sort of starting anew. And. You know, again, it's it's the the need to to exercise the blight that is sort of white supremacy, the poison of uh, white nationalism that has taken root, you know, most vividly in in the last few years on on the internet and in terms of the alt right, but has been with us for for four hundred years. You know, policing is is like with housing and like with education and, and as with any facet of life, I don't think that there's a quick and easy way. And, and that's why I think that keeping these conversations broad while we are still trying to understand what these systems could look like is so important right now. And I, I think that policing needs to be a part of that as well. But um, it's it's not going to be an overnight thing. And so people need to be committed to continuing to apply pressure on this. I would like to shift gears and talk about the federal response to COVID. We're anticipating that the recovery could take many years. And you've talked about the need for federal stabilization funding going to the 10th CD. We've essentially at this point had two and a half stimulus packages. And the GOP and the Trump administration are pushing back very hard on getting that direct help to states and also to getting more direct help for individuals and small businesses. Uh, if you were sitting in Congress right now, what would you be doing in response to that and, and trying to get the money to the districts and the people and the states who need it? Yeah, well, in the stabilization funding, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is whoever wins the seat. That needs to be uh, I, their top priority in terms of what goes into a COVID relief package and, and subsequent relief packages. Because our, our district, which includes all of uh, Olympia, the state capital, but also, of course, state and local governments and, and institutions of higher education, as a lot of congressional districts do. But we have such a high concentration of public employees that the upcoming inevitable budget cuts that are going to be a result of reduced revenue because of our economic downturn, it is going to hit this district particularly hard. And back during the Great Recession in 2009 and 2010, 
the Obama administration included in their stimulus package stabilization funding for state and local governments for exactly this reason. Now, when the Tea Party wave happened and House Republicans took over, that stabilization funding stopped. And that's when we started to see the really terrible layoffs in state and local government in the South Sound um, around 2012 and 2013. And state employees, they actually they voluntarily took a pay cut then to, to make sure that they could avoid as many layoffs. Um, and they've really just gotten back to where they were within the last year or so. And so now for this to happen again is just devastating for, for those families who have already sacrificed a lot. But making sure that we can keep that going needs to be a priority. The two other things that I really think well, one of them is is needs to happen before I get there. I mean, we need to have national vote by mail. We need to provide the resources for state and local governments to do that in a way that, you know, they're able to actually implement it when they're acting in good faith. But it certainly needs to happen before November. Course. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and then another thing is, is direct payment. I think it was good that Congress did that one direct payment. I wish it had been three or four or five. And I think until we hit a place where our economy is sort of functioning in a healthy way, I, I don't think that we can rule out this continued direct payments to help Americans budget and plan and, and keep working families afloat. But there needs to be a lot more. We are also just now seeing a resurgence in cases, which is it's ominous. And this is another big question that I'll ask you. But if we do indeed have a new wave of pandemic on our hands, given what we have learned thus far, how do you feel we should approach that in a way that balances public health and economic concerns? Yeah, um, that is in, you know, by the I, I hope that by the time um, you know, people are listening to this, that we aren't in a sort of crisis level of, of panic like we were in, in terms of New York City um, in states like Arizona or, or Texas upcoming. But unfortunately, the, the trend line on hospitalization um, is looking pretty awful and dire. And I I really struggle with this because every, every single person in this country is trying to strike the right balance in their personal life between public health, but also their own well-being and, you know, not being excessive about the the things that they're doing to, uh, you know, be, be mindful and, and slow the spread, um, but, but also to, you know, continue living life. And I think that we got ahead of ourselves on relaxing some of these social distancing way too quickly. And I think there were some states who never really were committed to it in the first place, and certainly the president was never really committed to it in the first place. Um, but I think even in some very progressive and democratic areas, even in our district, I've been frankly surprised by, I guess, the way that we sort of treat moving into these new phases um, that the governor's been rolling out as sort of prizes to be won um, for good behavior. And I, I understand that that incentivizes people, but the problem is those thresholds are completely arbitrary, right? I mean, they've changed the sort of density from 10 to 25 out of 100K just, you know, I mean, they could draw that line sort of anywhere um, and it can be taken away for something that has nothing to do with people's behavior. So I'm, I'm very worried we're in a situation now where people feel like they've sort of done the right things and have gotten the reward of phase two. And now for things that have nothing to do with anything that they have done, but need to be done because of how the virus is spreading, it's going to need to be taken away. And I think that's going to make it really difficult to get people to follow it again, because, you know, fooling once, shame on you, fooling twice, you know, or Pulling one shame on you. You you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, so I don't know. I mean, like with policing, it's we're all winging it here. I, I don't know exactly what the next while is gonna look like, but I, I do think that we're gonna have to go back into a phase where we need to be more cognizant of the need for social distancing. And I, I hope that it doesn't get so bad that the reason we do that is because it's gotten so bad. I hope we can we can act preemptively. 
What I'm hearing from you generally as we kind of try to unpack a lot of the things that are happening right now is that you philosophically are inclined to to listen and to to really uh, think things through deeply and, and to look at the data. Um, I, I would actually encourage people very strongly to go to your website and look at some of your policy positions, because I will just say candidly, they're, they're really some of the, the, the deepest and most uh, well thought out uh, that I have seen from a candidate in quite some time. Can you remind us of what your campaign website is? Yeah, it's billgardner.com, um, just my name. Um, and uh, I, I appreciate you mentioning that we put a lot of work into that and, and we are continually adding um, new policies to that uh, as we go. Or we have a COVID-19 page. Um, we've specifically added a section about police reform and police brutality um, in the last week or so. Um, and yeah, like you said, listening. I mean, anyone who claims to have all of the solutions in a moment like this is either ignorant of their own uh, failings or just bluffing. I mean, we are in truly unprecedented times on a public health standpoint, um, on climate uh, on preservation of liberal democracy. I mean, there are just so many existential threats to the Republic right now and to the planet in some respects that we, we, we have to reevaluate what we sort of consider as within the framework of possible and acceptable and viable. And that, that doesn't happen um, without people talking about it. Right. You, you have to expand that debate, even if it doesn't happen the first time around to get people talking about it. And given the fact that we are all winging it, uh, given the fact that none of us know exactly how to solve this, I think that creates potential for some very positive outcomes out of a terrible series of situations. But it also means there's a lot on the line. Um, but any any policymaker going into this, I think, needs to approach it with humility with an understanding that they're not going to make it get everything right um, and with an understanding that we need to be listening to the scientists to the experts to following facts not just telling people what they want to hear because we need to keep the trust or we need to rebuild trust in government um, people people don't follow public health orders if they don't trust the people giving them and um, that you know, it's tough to regain trust when it's been lost. So we need to to be cognizant about preserving as much of it as we have before we lose it anymore. You did touch on policy a little bit there. You, you mentioned climate. I believe you mentioned health care. I'll just ask you generally, uh, do you think that the response that we've had at the federal level to the pandemic with the, the trillions of dollars, just unprecedented amounts of capital being shifted around that the federal government has moved to address it. Do you think that that has in any way impacted or shifted the way that we think about what is possible on a governmental level when facing an existential crisis like, say, the climate crisis or, you know, the, the, the health care crisis? I think it could. I, I think it should. I, I think that there's a, a remarkable parallel between COVID and climate as issues, the response, and that these cannot be solved uh, by one nation alone. It must be a coordinated global response. It requires us listening to science. You can't uh, BS your way through it, no matter how much the president might try, because carbon is going to do what carbon is going to do. The virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. Um, but it also requires a huge political mobilization and a change to sort of fundamental aspects of how our society has been structured. And I think the one big difference is that COVID has happened very quickly. 
uh, and climate is, is happening at such a broad scale. Right. But in both of those ways, it makes it hard to wrap your head around it. But what I hope is that as we recover from the pandemic and, and implement solutions to it, that we can take those lessons and apply it to some of these other issues. But I do think it's opened people's minds in terms of what's possible. Yeah, that's that's more what I was kind of driving at. It's yeah. at least in terms of the body politic and, and what people will accept, I think, in response to these sorts of, of crises. Do you, do you feel that's changed? Yeah. And I mean, you can look at, you know, the New Deal after the, the Great Depression. I mean, FDR's philosophy was just sort of try anything. And some of those things got struck down by a conservative Supreme Court. Some of them uh, just, you know, didn't really last in, in terms of the effect that they were having. But uh, people were open to it. And and I think, you know, they they alleviated some of the suffering that was happening there. And, you know, eventually there will be a backlash. Eventually the forces that like the status quo, that like the power that they have, uh, will come reeling back. But what we can do is keep the momentum up as long as we can and and do as much as we can in the time that we have. Um, and hopefully, you know, we we don't have to see too much suffering for it to happen. That's the sort of it's it's tough to ever found, sound sort of happy about these moments that we're in because they're right. almost all too often caused by us not acting quick enough. But now that we're in that spot, hopefully we can act quick enough to prevent it again. I would love to talk before we go a little bit about your background and maybe some of your expectations about where you would fit in in D.C. If, if you win in November, you would join, I think, what is inarguably a stellar delegation of Democratic members of Congress from our state. We have uh, progressive standouts like Pramila Jayapal, who spearheads legislation. We have committee chairs like Adam Smith, uh, Susan Del Benny and Derek Kilmer are consensus builders. Uh, your old boss, Denny Heck, was very instrumental with the DCCC. Where do you see yourself fitting on that spectrum as a leader? Yeah, so I am... Um I sort of describe myself personally as a, a liberal Democrat with progressive values. Um, and what I mean by that is, is my values are, are progressive. I was raised in a Unitarian Universalist church. You know, social justice has been something that's been a, a key part of my life, all of my life. Um, I've always sought to be a part of public service in some way to alleviate human suffering and, and balance the scales of justice in this country. Um, and so that's sort of the, the focus of, of what, what I want to do. But I also am very cognizant, and a big reason why I got into this race is that as a 28-year-old, I have been in rooms that very few 28-year-olds have been able to get into, and, and very few people generally are able to get into in terms of where decisions are being made and political power is being concentrated. And that's been an experience that um, you know, I, I first managed my, my first campaign when I was still in high school, a local state representative named Tammy Green. Um, and I just had the sort of body of experience and knowledge of how the system works and how our political system works that is, again, very uncommon for someone of my age. And I think that that gives me a perspective to both understand as a young person that that angle, but also understand really how these systems can work. And I think that that's, you know, there's a lot of young people who are very politically aware and involved. And there's a lot of folks who are sort of very deeply on the inside and understand a system, but there's not really a lot of overlap between the two. And that's sort of the sweet spot that I'm trying to hit. I'm trying to be in a place where we are communicating our values to people in a way that gets them to trust that something is happening, uh, trust that they are being heard, trust that progress is being made, um, but also being very realistic and not going there just to make a point, going there to make progress, going there to actually uh, achieve wins, win elections, grow our majority, defend our majority, so on and so forth. So I think that 
my experience as a communications director, as a political strategist, I, even though these are elected officials back in DC, a lot of them really don't know how to talk to people about what they're trying to do and they get lost in footnotes and, and so on and so forth. And, and I think that's a, a deficit that uh, needs to be filled. I think that's a deficit that I could help fill. Um, and that's, that's something that I think would make a big difference in terms of young people feeling like they're really a part of this democracy. In in terms of getting things done, the, let's let's focus on the practical side for a moment. This is obviously going to depend on what the landscape looks like after the election. But, you know, I, even if the Democrats retain the House, take the White House, take the Senate, best case scenario, I'm wondering how you face the issue of getting things done. Because Republicans, as we know, they deal in bad faith. They deal in intransigence. I mean, even when Obama had both majorities, uh, it was still very difficult for him to get yes. things done. How do you, how do you look at that equation, that, that, that puzzle? Yeah, I remember that very well. I was uh, actually in the Capitol when Ted Cruz shut down the government in uh, 2013 to try to repeal Obamacare. And um, that's not something that's going to stop because they, they don't want us to succeed because they don't agree that there's a problem that needs to be solved. And so there's no way to negotiate in good faith. As you said, I think a huge, huge question here is what the Senate is going to look like. Um, if, if Mitch McConnell is still there, it's just, this, yeah. you know, yeah. so <laughs> on, on the assumption. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that filibuster reform or, or some, you know, I don't know if we need to completely eliminate it. I would be fine with that, but some way that we can move some of these things without 60 votes. But even if none of that can happen, you know, the, the, the Biden administration will be pushing some new policies through executive action as this become the trend. And it's the role of their allies in Congress to, to support those and defend those, but also to hold them accountable when they're not falling through um, on some of their promises. And then even with all of the muck that's happening, there truly is below the surface a few issues that really make a difference where you can work across the aisle. And, and Denny has been able to do that still while being a very fervent defender of the majority and, and, you know, calling out the president, but still was able to get the largest reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank in the last spending bill that went through in December. Um, and that's something that supports manufacturing jobs here in Washington and, and allows us to export. Um, so it's it's a balance there where we have to fight tooth and nail, but you can't lose sight that there are a few things that still can happen. Um, and I I would try to to do the best of both worlds there. And, and I think that's what Denny's tried to do. And, and I would like to do that with a, a slightly refreshed perspective and a, a different sort of energy. Um, well, I mean, does that come, I, I'm wondering how your communications background might play into that, because as we know, McConnell and the GOP play this very cynical game where they refuse to even vote on Democratic legislation. And because most people don't follow politics that closely, voters see it as neither side getting anything done. And so from a communication standpoint, how do you message that for voters in a way that allows Democrats like yourself to really adhere to and stay true to your progressive values? Yeah, I, I, and you nailed it. And, and the issue is they don't really want to accomplish anything other than, than judges. So they're, they have a structural advantage there. And then it's a lot easier to block something than affirmatively to pass something. I think that the attitude that we need to adopt is that we are just always in a, a continual state of minority, even when we are technically in majority back there. Because the truth is that even when they are not in charge of a chamber of Congress, the big picture in terms of the uh, collective advantages of white privilege that they have and, and economic privilege, it still means in sort of a broad societal structure of power, 
the Republican coalition is dominant, even when Democrats control the federal government. And I think that continuing to talk about issues and continuing to talk about the progress we need to make on that sort of broader issue beyond the day-to-day back and forth of D.C. is something that voters sort of understand to their core. They understand that the system is not fair. Um, And I think that we need to make sure to stay in touch with how people are viewing what's happening in D.C. and not trying to explain every single time the wonky ins and outs of what's happening. There. Well, you know, um, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think a couple weeks ago, I would have disagreed with that statement. But we've seen such a shift in, in public opinion on so many matters regarding that right now that you very well may be right that the the, the perceptions about uh, D.C. and particularly Republican intransigence uh, may be shifting. Yeah. And I think, again, it's taken a, a terrible series of events for for it to happen um but i you know i mean again they have a structural advantage there's no if there was an easy way to get around us being in the situation we would have taken it um but failing that um trying to frame these narratives in a way that shows that there really are more of us and us being the sort of broad anti-trump coalition broad resistance movement uh than there are of them and i i don't I don't love thinking of the American society as a whole as an us versus them, but elections are a competition. This is how we we have elections so that we don't have street fights. Right. This is a a peaceful way of settling our differences and and deciding power. And we need to communicate to people that even when we're winning elections, they're really the ones with the power here. And what we need to do is organize, focus and just continue to push, 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 push. And we won't win every time, but we will win sometimes. And when we don't succeed, we get back up and keep going. I would like to address just a couple of areas where I think people have maybe taken issue with your campaign. And one is the question of experience. You've talked extensively about how you have been in the room, but uh, people note that you have not actually been in the chair. You have never run for or held elected office. I'll just give you a chance to respond to that. Sure. You know, Dr. Schreier had never held elected office before, um, and I think she's doing a, an outstanding job as our, our newest uh, member of the delegation. Um, you know, there are already lots of mayors and legislators in Congress right now. Um, there are very, very few young people. And the notion that and, and, and again, I really got in this race above all else, because I do think that the lack of young people in D.C. having real tangible power prevents a lot of the issues that young people care about from moving to the top of the agenda. And if all that needed to happen was for young people to work as staffers, then this wouldn't be a problem in the first place. There are already young staffers. Mm. That is clearly not sufficient enough to move young issues up the agenda. And you either have to believe that, yes, young people should be in government or could be in government. But by definition, that means that their resumes are not going to be as lengthy because they're young. Um, So you know, what I what I invite anybody who may be concerned or, or thinks I'm sort of cutting the line is, you know, one, it's it's not a line. It's it's a democracy and it needs to be representative of everybody. Um, and two is to to look at the work I've done, look at the, the leaders who have endorsed me. And, and I hope they'll look at my website and, and listen to this and, you know, uh, sort of ask yourself, you know, OK, is, is this person capable of doing the job? I, I think I certainly am. Um, and then sort of ask yourself, okay, in a big picture sense, what do we need back in DC? And I think what we need are, are young people with experience, know-how, and a record of service. And there are very few 28-year-olds in the country who could put together a campaign and be in a position that we're in. And so if we're not going to send a young person to Congress here, when are we going to do this? Where are we going to do this? 
right? Either either we do it here and we say that this is something that matters to us, or we don't. And I don't know what is going to happen in the future. I know eventually there's going to be members of Congress born in the 1990s, and I'd like for us to get there while we can still make a difference. If you were elected, you would also be the state's first openly LGBTQ member, which of course would be extraordinary and long overdue. But you are also a white male, and people have also asked, why do we need another white male in Congress? I'll give you a chance to respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, well, for one, I think that what really matters is for people to to live in their districts and know the district. And, and the only sort of other major opponent here who lives in the district is also white. So I think in terms of this specific race. You're referring um, to Beth Dillard. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, and and. and uh, Representative Reeves and Mayor Strickland, who I, who I respect on a professional level, but I do think it matters that that they don't that this district was their second choice. Um, and I think that though, as a white man, um, but as an LGBT person, you know, this being Pride Month, it's important to remember that that the Pride movement began as a riot, and uh, the way that LGBTQ people have been treated throughout this country's history. Uh, has been pretty terrible. And the the folks in the LGBT community have been able to reach a level of comfort is in a large part due to their privilege that comes from being white or male. And so I view my role as trying to lift up those voices within the LGBTQ community. Um, Black trans uh, people are being murdered at an astonishing rate in this country. It does not get anywhere near the attention, even the very limited attention that other uh, killings get. Um, and, you know, there's just a panoply of, of in, in our district, we have one of the largest populations of transgender service members in the entire country at JBLN. They are serving technically in violation of a presidential order, but they are still doing it with dignity and honor. Um, those are the sorts of issues that I want to go in there and fight for. I understand that, you know, my, my sexuality is just one aspect and that does not give me a comprehensive understanding, but it does, I think, give me a, uh, way to get my foot in the door and get people in spaces of power uh, to frankly maybe listen to me in ways that they haven't been willing to listen to other people because of the implicit biases. And I wish that that weren't the reality, but you know, as an ally trying to use my privilege, I think that is one aspect that I can do it. Um, but I, you know, I, I will not pretend to speak for every member of the LGBTQ community. I certainly won't pretend to speak, uh, alone for, for, uh, people of color within the LGBTQ community. Um, but it is a community that I'm a part of, and, um, I will always advocate, uh, and listen, uh, for those who, who need help. Thank you, uh, for all of that. Uh, just one last question before I let you go. As district director, I'm sure you know that indivisible members are really big into accountability. Uh, so, uh, first of all, I'm wondering how you would make yourself available to uh, members in the district, particularly uh, members who are, are more active and who are looking to take a more active role uh, in their government, town halls, office meetings, that sort of thing. Yeah. And as district, I would do both, all of the above. Uh, as district director, I met with Olympia Indivisible every month for three years. Um, and I would meet with uh, Indivisible Tacoma, I think about quarterly. They, they, I would have met with them as monthly if, if that's what they were request was. Um, so I've been doing that work with Indivisible chapters um, for the last three years, and I would want to continue that um, as, as a member of Congress. When, when the Indivisible movement started to form right after the 2016 election, I, I sort of recognized that this is a, a powerful movement and a group of people who have a capacity to make real impact and real change. And I think we've seen that in terms of stopping the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and, and many other issues. But um, 
you know, I, I wouldn't, the, the Trump administration for me or the Trump years for me are defined in large part by the activism and the work that individual chapters have done. And I think that for our country to recover and get back on the right track, uh, we need to keep indivisible chapters involved and engaged and going forward. Um, and I would always have an open door in the same way that I did um, as district director. Well, that is music to the ears of people listening, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so just uh, before we go one more time, uh, tell people where they can learn more about your campaign. Yes, it is at philgardner.com, G-A-R-D-N-E-R.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Um just type in my name and, and you'll be able to find us pretty quickly. And I will have all that information for everybody in the show notes. Phil Gardner, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking thank the time, you. man. Yeah, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.